0: Welcome to the first episode of British Art Talks, a new podcast from the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. I'm Anna Reid, Head of Research at the PMC. To start our summer series, we're focusing on an 1837 painting by William Etty called The Sirens and Ulysses. Working in the early 19th century, Etty produced mythological and literary scenes displaying the female body. At the time, the artist insisted that to the pure of heart, all things are pure. But his unconventional portrayals of the classical nude both shocked and captivated audiences. I'm joined now by classicist Mary Beard and art historian Cora Gilroy Ware, author of The Classical Body in Romantic Britain. Welcome to you both. Mary, could you remind us of the story told in this painting?
1: (laughs) Yeah, It's a very simple classical story and it originates in Homer's Odyssey. Odysseus is on his way home trying to get back from the Trojan War to his wife Penelope in Ithaca and he has all kinds of distractions let's say on the way and one of those distractions is the mythical women half half-women, known as the Sirens. The Sirens have the most beautiful singing voices and they sit on the shore and they lure hapless sailors to their death. They're captivated by their song, they go over to explore the Sirens, but they end up crashing and dying on the coast. Now, Odysseus is extremely keen to hear the voice of the sirens, but doesn't want to end up dead. He instructs his men, and this is what we see happening in at his painting, he instructs his men to tie him fast to the mast of the ship, to plug their own ears up with beeswax, to let him hear the song of the sirens, but not let him follow them. <laughs> and that is actually what they do. Now, you can tell from the way I've told it that it is a curious, intriguing, uh, mythological story. It's also homing in on some of the basic Greek topics uh, of misogyny. You know, it's about what women do to a, to a man, about women's danger, the idea that the pleasures of the woman can be the death of the man. And that's what we see
0: here. Odysseus himself escapes. Cora, can you describe Etty's painting for the listeners? Well, this is a very large painting.
2: Up to this point, it was the largest work that Etty had ever produced. It's roughly 14 by 9 feet, so it's on a very grand scale. And the composition consists of three groups of figures. So first we have the main group in the foreground, which is made up of those three very robust, creamy female bodies that are slightly larger than life size. They're all completely naked, covered only by loose draperies that are placed over their thighs. One of these draperies is of an intense crimson colour, the other one is green with a kind of yellowish pattern on it, and one is a rich dark blue. And these figures are crouching and kneeling on a seashore, I believe a meadow is how it's described in the original text. And Etty has included some patches of green on the ground, some fronds and flowers in addition to sand and shells. One of these female figures is turned toward us. uh, One is shown in profile playing a lyre. And one has her arms raised vertically towards the sky. And then in the relative distance behind them, you have a ship... Containing a cluster of male figures that are all semi naked. And we know they're all male because they're very, very, very muscular. Um, One shows his face, um, so we understand that he's important. His arms are behind his back. One of his legs is bent, the other is stretched taut, so it seems he's being restrained by the men around him. And lastly, Next to the female figures on this meadow seashore, uh, to the right of them, there's a third group consisting of a lifeless body, um, a skeleton or two, and a rotting corpse. And without knowing anything at all about the subject of the painting, it's quite clear that these female figures are responsible for the death and the carnage next to them. Cora, how was the painting received by its original audience? I think critics all agreed that this was a very striking picture. There wasn't a kind of general consensus that these figures were particularly beautiful. You have one critic saying that, in fact, they're anything but beautiful, and we're not quite sure whether or not there was something inherently um, distasteful, unattractive about their profusions of flesh. Um, Another response was the women in the painting just were mere academy models and that they had no, um, that they weren't sufficiently idealized. And again, another critic said that they had more in common with the showgirls at Greenwich Fair. But overall, there was a, people were impressed. Critics were impressed with the painting and its grand scale.
0: Cora, can you tell us a little bit about how you feel that Etty adapts and alters and transforms the text? And Mary, could you comment too? It's probably useful to
1: go back actually to. Homer's original uh, text and to remind ourselves of the story in his words. Uh, And the translation we've chosen is Emily Wilson's recent translation of the Odyssey, which is very up to the minute and and I think has become very popular, partly because it refuses to euphemise the Odyssey. And so It's one of the very, very few translations where when Homer talks about slaves, we call them slaves, not servant girls.
3: First you will hear the sirens who bewitch all passerby. If anyone goes near them in ignorance and listens to their voices, that man will never travel to his home and never make his wife and children happy to have him back with them again. The sirens, who sit there in their meadow, will seduce him with piercing songs. Around them lie great heaps of men, flesh rotting from their bones, their skin all shriveled up.
2: Betty has used the Latin name Ulysses rather than the Greek name Odysseus, but uh, in the ancient text, he's warned by Circe of the danger presented by the sirens. That's right, isn't it, Mary? Yes, she's.
1: I mean, Circe is some um, the lady with just with whom Ulysses or Odysseus has recently been dallying, an extremely alluring witch. <laughs> And it's she who tells him how he can manage to hear
2: the Song of the Sirens uh, without actually ending up a corpse. Right, so Etty has painted the moment at which Ulysses Odysseus himself sees the sirens, but he's also included the corpses that Circe had warned him about on the sand um, next to the group. And to Etty's contemporaries, this group of decaying and decomposed bodies was actually the most disturbing aspect of the picture, far more than the naked female bodies. One critic complained of the cluster of putrid corpses and skeletons in the foreground, that it was depicted with, quote, loathsome fidelity. The surgeons will be in raptures. Indeed, the picture is only fit to adorn a dissecting room, end quote. Um, So it was not just the inclusion of this um, kind of gore, it was the scientifically precise and detailed way in which it was painted. And other critics insisted that Etty just shouldn't have included the group, And they complained about the way that the corpses lessened the beauty and charm of the sirens, which obviously completely misses the point that the beauty and charm of the sirens here has an additional function, that it it kills. And I think it's, it's interesting that you've always got a problem when you're an artist,
1: and this goes back right to the ancient world itself, of how are you going to show these sirens? They are both so alluring, but they're also half woman, half fish.
2: So, yeah, I was going to talk to you about that, actually. So what could you talk a bit about the iconography of the sirens in the ancient world?
1: Mythological creatures in the ancient world, they always present a problem for artists then like they do now. But very frequently, the sirens are represented, as you mostly find them in literature, as hybrids, half animal, half fish, and half woman. And, of course, that gives you a very, very different sense of what underlies the story. Because when they're there as if they were kind of slightly awkward mermaids, what you focus on is actually the idea that this is the alluring voice. I think a lot of artists take the next step and they become just Extremely attractive women, of which the voice is obviously one part, but actually this is the body of woman as well as the voice of woman that is so catastrophically attractive to men. And I, I think here, I mean, you've mentioned Cora, the the way that they're the only kind of bits of clothing they have are some sort of wafty bits of coloured drapery. That's partly an alibi for Etty for, you know, making the women not mermaids. (laughs) You kind of just kind of half imagine that he's disguising their, you know, their fishy bottoms. Um, But really, this is pushing the myth on and saying it is the body and all the attributes of woman that is so deadly.
2: What's um, striking to me about Etty's sirens is just how human, actually, and how earthbound they appear the gravitational weight of their bodies on the ground and they have these soft bulbs of flesh that protrude around the knees and hips which are actually very satisfying to look Mm. at each one has a different hair color which makes them seem like more sort of three british women than three mythological creatures
1: i often wonder what people who didn't know the story of the sirens would make of this painting. It's always struck me that this was one of the the highlights of the Manchester Art Treasures exhibition in 1857, and the myth of that exhibition, still the biggest exhibition of painting that has ever been in this country, the myth of it is that the benevolent factory owners trained their, their workforce in to get a sight of this exhibition, and I wonder what on earth someone coming from a background where they didn't know what this classical story was, and you know you've, you've been brought in forcibly by your master to see great art, and what you see is this, and you think, you know, what on
2: earth must you have thought? <laughs> and I wonder if those. Um if those audiences would have been kind of horrified by the by the figures or whether or not they would have been kind of inexorably drawn to them.
1: No, I don't think we have you know, any reliable reactions um, from those outside the kind of critical circle. But I kind of imagine them saying, so that's art then? <laughs> you know, all oh, right, I get it, I see. Um, the juxtaposition of those rather aggressively alluring naked women with the dead bodies. You know, I think it's troubling, actually. And it's
2: so against the grain of sort of contemporary conceptions of femininity as well. But I also wonder if, if it kind of fit in line with sort of extant stereotypes of the sort of annihilating nature of female body and female yeah. sexuality um, during the 19th century. Yeah. Etty was the foremost painter of the nude figure during the Regency and early Victorian periods, and throughout his career, the nude, particularly the female figure, but also the male body, remained uh, his favorite thing to paint. Standing, reclining, bathing, dancing, alone or arranged in groups. So this painting's really characteristic in this respect. Mary, in your uh, documentary, Shock of the Nude, you spoke of um, that, that tendency to use classicism as an alibi for painting eroticized images of the naked body. Could you just talk a bit more about this idea of alibi and how um, you view it in relation to Etty and his use of classicism?
1: I did say classical mythology
2: is often, um, you know, it gives you
1: an excuse, a learned excuse for looking at naked flesh. And I think it would be naive to think otherwise, you know, somehow naked females are fine, as long as you can call them naiads or dryads or and give them a, a, a pedigree, whether in Homer or in Ovid. The classical world has whether it's literature or art, has always been a place where you can read about sex and still kind of tell your mum. I think that what's interesting to me here is there's a strange clash, because if you look back to the boat on which Odysseus is being restrained so that he can hear the beautiful voice of the sirens, when I look at the almost larger-than-life figure of Odysseus on that boat, I'm sort of half-seeing, the famous sculpture of the Laocoon in that, the bound figure, although this he's bound with ropes and Laocoon was being strangled by snakes. There's something very much that kind of classical Baroque male figure in that. When you come to the, the sirens, that's both in their shape, in their attitude, their upfront alluringness. Um, that's something which is quite different from what you find in the representation of the classical female body in the ancient world. So there's a kind of strange mismatch for me here between the figure of the the male hero, who is right out of textbook classicism, and the women represented obeying the logic of the classical text, but being visually completely different.
2: Yes, I mean, that's the sort of standard line about Etty, is that he kind of does away with that convention of adhering to the proportions of sculptures like the Venus de Medici, for example, that you mention in your documentary, that he embraces the body of the living model, and this is his kind of radical intervention into contemporary art, that he does away with the classical ideal. But actually, I think that there's something more complex going on. I think that, in a way, this painting is classical and it is idealized and that group is a take on the three graces i mean apart from the pose they have those sort of small in quotes small delicate breasts of the ancient sculpture some of the um paintings by etty have these large breasts which is i think really interesting but i think that there is a tendency to overstate etty's departure from the classical ideal but having said that his fixation on the living model does produce these bodies that are slightly fleshier, more irregular, and more particular than your standard kind of de eroticized classical nude in mythological uh, history painting of the previous generation. These aren't naked bodies; they're still nudes, and they're still classical nudes. So what Etty's doing is he's taking the sort of old masters, the Titians, etc., and he's amplifying and heightening that sensuality. The models that he employed and that he allowed to sort of enter the pictorial space were sex workers, a lot of them, or modeled to avoid sex work, and all of them were from working-class backgrounds, and this was something that is alluded to in the criticism of his works, that these women have no place in this kind of rarefied classical imagery. Actually, with the sirens, one critic said they had more in common with the showgirls at Greenwich Fair than the mythological creatures of antiquity. There's this kind of dormant and troubling sort of sexuality that they possess. Um,
1: I suppose now we do tend to look at these classical female naked sculptures and to see them in some ways as rather de-eroticised and in contrast to what Etty's doing here. And of course, actually, that was certainly not the case. Those who looked at those classical sculptures in the 18th century, they were seen in highly erotic terms in the ancient world itself. And just the same story, gets told of those people who model for classical sculptures or just the same insinuations, you know, has he used a prostitute to base the image of the goddess Aphrodite on? So however uh, formally different I think these figures are, the ideology and the difficulty and the awkwardness is very much in a continuum from the ancient world.
2: Hmm on a theoretical level, sort of late 18th century, that sense of de-eroticizing patently erotic images is something that's going on all the time. And people are obviously constantly trying to justify these sensual depictions of naked bodies by saying that, you know, they're pure and they're virtuous and they're inspiring. And actually what Etty does is he, although he's kind of moralizing about his art at the same time, he makes no attempt to sort of downplay it or make it chaste.
1: No, but I, I think even the whole project to de-eroticise is is a kind of backhanded look at how you eroticise, really. Um, so I have to confess that when I when I first saw it in Manchester, um, because it has been quite recently beautifully restored, and partly its size, you know, and you think, oh gosh, you know, really, you know, are you serious? Uh, but Uh, When you get over that and observing people in Manchester Art Gallery and looking at it, uh, you know, I have to say, Cora, they don't treat it quite as seriously as we're treating it. Um, I'm afraid I have to to promise you that. But underneath it is this question of what is it to represent this encounter between a bound man (laughs) and some deadly half-human beings who are the most Attractive, insinuating, treacherous sort of women you can have. What is a convincing representation of that? And I think that in what sense does this painting help me understand what's going on here? And when I'm in my pro-ETI moods, um, I think, well, look, it really does actually. you know there you know there is something which is quite terrifying here because I know that Odysseus he might survive this encounter. But he's actually going to get home with none of his crew alive. This is one chapter on the way to almost total disaster, at which our hero, who's here totally dependent on the crew of his ship, which our hero survives, but nobody else does. And you have to question the heroism of Odysseus you know what's a hero when he loses all his crew <laughs> you know that doesn't sound very heroic to me and so as well as being part of the tradition of the most in-your-face misogyny that Greek literature can can come up with and it can come up with plenty there's also a questioning of that figure in the background and um, what he's up to and in what way this is part of an ultimately rather poignant disaster narrative.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite clear that the sirens are the ones who have the power. That's why the sort of exaggerated muscularity of the figures is so, appears sort of impotent um, because it's, you know, no match for the sirens' beautiful appearance and the, the way this beautiful appearance is suggestive of their sweet, irresistible song. But
1: I can sort of flip that. And I can say, what are these women doing? All they can do is try to, <laughs> is try to attack passing sa- sailors. And there's a kind of desperation in some ways, the way they put their arms out, the way they say, come and get me. We know in the end that the sirens are not the heroes of this story.
2: Are they the heroes of this painting, though? Do you think that they kind of... Be-
1: I think that it's very hard to make them that when you've got the corpses and the bones next to them because without them, it's a completely different painting.
2: We were going to talk about the male body. I mean, I was really interested in um, Mary's point about the Larkoan. This is sort of post the Elgin or Parthenon marbles acquisition and what that did was that that sort of musculature and male musculature and anatomy acquired this new importance among contemporary painters of mythological scenes um, because the figures from the Parthenon were heralded as possessing a more detailed and scientifically wrought anatomy than the previously cherished works of ancient sculpture that represent the male body like the Apollo Belvedere for example in the Vatican. So what's interesting, and I think we see this really clearly in this painting, is that this renewed investment in anatomy didn't extend to the female body at all. And actually, female forms were seen to be uh, infinitely less beautiful if they possessed a more detailed and more accurate anatomy. And so the soft planes of flesh that characterize the sirens that completely uninterrupted contrast so strikingly with the male figures in the background, which every tendon, every muscle is is represented. Um, and although I wouldn't necessarily say the Parthenon marbles are kind of a direct influence on the figures, um, Etty was making studies after them and was interested in them. But the figure of Ulysses, it's got this kind of rather strange f- face, which is kind of a different colour to the rest of his body, sort of ashen, and it doesn't seem to match his kind of rippling, golden, developed body. Actually, one critic complained that they didn't understand why he looked as if he'd taken the laughing gas. Um, <laughs> I think this is an expression of discomfort. It's that sort of tension between the physical strength of the men and the, the sirens, um, who I would still think are the kind of locus of power in the painting. Soon
3: our well-built ship, blown fast by fair winds, neared the island of the Sirens, and suddenly the wind died down. Calm came. Some spirit lulled the waves to sleep. The men got up, pulled down the sails, and stowed them in the hollow hold. They sat at oar and made the water whiten, struck by polished wood, I gripped a wheel of wax between my hands and cut it small, firm, kneading, and the sunlight warmed it, and then I rubbed it in the ears of each man in his turn. They bound my hands and feet, straight upright at the mast. They sat and hit the sea with oars. We travelled fast, and when we were in earshot of the sirens, they knew our ship was near and started singing. Odysseus, come here. You are well known for many stories. Glory of the Greeks. Now stop your ship and listen to our voices. All those who pass this way hear honeyed song poured from our mouths. Their song was so melodious, I longed to listen more. I told my men to free me. I scowled at them, but they kept rowing on.
2: So, is this a kind of depiction of a sort of male bonding in a way against the evils of, you know, the feminine seduction, the bro code, the bromance? You know, that the boys save each save save their friend from yeah danger. And I think, to, to some
1: extent, that's what the original Odysseus story is, you know, that it's, you know, it's very easy to kind of write off the Odyssey as if it's, you know, it's so old, it must be unsophisticated. But the Odyssey itself is raising all those kind of issues. But in the end, this is the boys, they're helping the boss. But in the end, the boss won't save them. There's tragedy in the background there. And in the end, the people who are going to be the danger, turn out not to be the sirens. They turn out to be Odysseus' own misplaced heroism, which in the end ends up saving himself and nobody else.
2: Can we talk about skin colour and flesh tone in the painting? Well, it's typical of that tendency that we see in ancient and modern art, post-antique art, of expressing gender difference through uh, skin tone. So this is something we see a lot in Rubens, for example, who is one of Etty's primary influences. The emphatic whiteness of the sirens and then that sort of sun-baked amber corpse on the ground uh, next to them. The frescoes in um, Pompeii and Herculaneum are one example that comes to mind, but I'm sure there are lots more. But I mean, I was just wondering, given the time period, I mean, this is really the point at which racial science and, I mean, white femininity had long been fetishized, but there's a particular kind of fixation on the beauty of white European women that's um, sort of emerging at this time and is being sort of described in scientific language. In my book, I quote Charles White, the aptly named pioneer of racial scientific literature who lavishes praise on the, quote, bosom of the European woman with its plump and snowy white hemispheres uh, tipped with vermilion. I think that description perfectly complements Etty's portrayal of the siren's rosy flesh but at the same time I don't think it's fair to claim that this painting is a celebration of a racialized ideal of white femininity. I think there were contemporary artists and um, Benjamin Robert Hayden for example who um, was sort of very much invested in racial science but Etty had absolutely as far as I know no interest in that and what's more painted um, sensitive and I think quite empathetic portrayals of black models as well but I think there's perhaps something to that sort of intense blinding whiteness of these bodies that maybe I don't know. Although it's also self-defeats doesn't it because It's a deathly whiteness.
1: You know, it is not a whiteness that you're ever going to have or enjoy. In fact, it's a whiteness that is devoted to killing you. So the admiration of that white female flesh, which I think underlies quite a lot of the paintings that you've been talking about, in a sense, Etty is helping you challenge that in a way.
2: Mm, Interesting.
0: Mary, can you comment on the relationship between the sirens and the natural forces depicted in the painting? Well, I think you've got a question here about
1: about what destruction is, about the relationship between nature and culture. A storm is brewing, isn't it? You know, look at look at the sail of the boat and look at those clouds. And, you know, you've got a question about, is the destructiveness of the woman, is that an analogue for the destructiveness of nature? You know, is nature female? You know, in the end, it's Poseidon, the, the god of the sea, is going to have a lot to do with this. And he's, you know, he's aggressively alpha male. But you are being asked the question, particularly when you see those very dark clouds against that raised arm of one of the very white sirens. You know, you're thinking, what is destruction? You know, what is going to ruin this this guy? What is going to ruin those men? What's the relationship between the uncontrollability of the natural world and the uncontrollability of the woman. Because ultimately, within Greek mythology, why women are dangerous is that you
2: can't ever tame them quite. You can't quite get them under control. Definitely. I'd add to that, though, that this painting was created at a time in which industrialism was rampant and inescapable. And Etty wrote that he wanted his painting to be a retreat from the, quote, din of commerce and the rattle of railways, the image of the female body and kind of female fecundity offered an escape and maybe even a resistance um, to technological progress. So that's maybe the sort of at stake in the kind of way that that relationship between nature and culture is um, being sort of coming across here.
0: Are they clouds or are they smoke? <laughs> oh, very good point. <laughs> what is it about Etty's works and their sensuous depictions of the classical body that makes them so engaging to the contemporary eye? I think more than ever
2: I'd say that we live in a body-obsessed culture even if we don't go looking for it all the time we hear phrases like body positivity and now body neutrality but even that's a kind of fixation on the body or plus size and we just all the time, get the sense of how important health and wellness and fitness have become. I think something about Etty's obsession with the body feels familiar and comfortable. Um, but at the same time, his art as art is completely unfashionable and out of step. So has this charming kind of kitsch quality to it. And as scandalous as his portrayals of nudity may have been to his contemporaries, they weren't actually progressive in any way. They were quite reactionary. So. I think his works kind of represent a dead end for painting and maybe there's something appealing about that too.
1: I almost 100% agree with Cora. and Still, the idea of Odysseus, the idea of the hero, the idea of the man trying to get home, tempted by women on his way to get home, is still hugely important in contemporary art and but it's of course been reformulated. and you know, what you find much more. and what you find, for example, in the translation of the Odyssey that, that we've been listening to is a, a sense that, as well as all that, there's an imperialist narrative here you know, that, that Odysseus, you he, know, he's the proto-imperialist. you know he's coming through all these places and getting off scot-free exploiting, moving on, blinding and killing in a way that, you know, for many artists, uh, African Caribbean or African American artists have been uh, really, really powerful. Whether that's uh, Romer Bearden or yeah, Roma, or, the Black Odyssey series, uh, is exactly, what came to
2: mind. Yeah, Yes.
1: or Derek Walcott. Yeah, and of so course. so we can't any longer quite picture the Odyssey like this. And I think in that sense, it is a dead end. You know, that it's and that's why it, it seems kitsch, and we can't sort of can't really process it. But I think we're processing the Odyssey and these kind of scenes and the the importance of the relationship of that kind of Ur mythology to our own culture, we're processing that in new ways.
0: Thank you to Mary Beard and to Cora Gilroy Ware. If you'd like to see William Etty's The Sirens in Ulysses for yourself, it can be viewed online as part of the Manchester Art Gallery collection. Cora's book, The Classical Body in Romantic Britain, is published by the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, and distributed by Yale University Press. Emily Wilson's 2018 translation of the Odyssey is published by WW Norton and Co. The reader was Susanna Harker. The Seculos epitaph with the lyre of Apollo was composed by Lena Palera via the Free Music Archive. William Etty and the Classical Body was produced by Miranda Hinckley and was a Loftus Media production.
3: British Art Talks from the Paul Mellon Centre, championing new ways of understanding British art, history and culture. For more episodes, information and images, visit the Paul Mellon Centre website at paul-mellon-centre.ac.uk.